Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the basket case states – and Richard, I take our inspiration today from a recent piece that you wrote for Defining Ideas in which you were looking at mismanagement and bad public policy decisions in the states. In this piece, you looked primarily at Connecticut and Illinois, although you also mentioned California in passing, a state that we've talked about here before. Uh, these are all states that are in the grip of dysfunction at the moment. So let me start by asking you this. Is there a through line with these places? Obviously, there's going to be some local variation, but do we see consistent patterns as to the kinds of policies that send states into the doldrums? Well, first of all, they're all chronically democratic blue states. Um, if you take states in which there are competitive situations, uh, uh, the situation tends to be a little bit better. And you can see this if you compare Illinois to its nearby states. Uh, Wisconsin is doing pretty well today. Indiana is doing very well today. Michigan's doing a little bit better. Iowa is doing better than the uh, situation in Illinois. Tennessee, of course, and the states of the south are doing much better. So Illinois turns out to be essentially the laggard. And the simple best measure of all of this is to watch the decline in population. Uh, Illinois cities losing, you know, small amounts, but that understates the actual losses because there's a small decline in absolute numbers. At the same time, there's an absolute increase in the population throughout the United States, and this state is not joining. My guess is come 2020, Illinois will lose yet another, maybe even two seats in the electoral, in the Congress, and therefore two votes in the Electoral College, because there's exit. Now, part of this, everybody will say, is that folks are going uh, to Mexico with their jobs, and there certainly is some truth to that. But uh, people are also going to other states like Indiana and the ones that I've mentioned, and those states are increasing in population, increasing in prosperity. Uh, if you get on the highway going into Indiana out of southern the southern part of Chicago, the first sign that you see sometimes is the sign that says, Indiana, the home of the balanced budget, um, which is just a subtle way of reminding people that Illinois is not been able to have a constitutionally required balanced budget since 2005 or 2004. At this point, it has a Republican governor who's dug his heels in on everything. It's a question which I could see a lot of argument about is how tough should he be when dealing with a hopelessly democratic um, assembly and so forth. So far, his fiscal measures have stuck in the sense that things haven't gotten worse, um, but the Democrats will continue to try because there's no budget and the bills that keep on, unpaid bills keep on piling up. And so their newest proposal is to try to have a substantial increase in the flat tax to close to 6%. And then the end game is going to be once that's in place, what they'll say is, well, we can't do this on everybody. So they say we have to lower it on 95% of the population. And so Illinois will get itself a progressive tax, at which point the progressivity will get constantly steeper. And then folks like myself may end up moving out if it turns out that they can't really uh, take the particular heat. This is a very dangerous situation. The bond rating at the state level, the bond rating in the city, the bond rating in the public schools are terrible. Uh, the unfunded pensions that the city has and that the school system has and the state has are growing. Uh, the exit of population means there are fewer able-bodied individuals to support this. So this is a state which essentially doesn't realize that the only chance it has for survival is market liberalization. And that is anathema to Michael Madigan and all the people who work with him in the Democratic state legislature and in the public 
public unions. On the tax point that you mentioned, is there a more acute danger for a state to have a highly progressive tax code than there is to have one at the federal level? Is, of course it is, uh, because it's much easier for a person to leave a state to go to a nearby state than it is to leave the United States and set up shop in Canada or in the Netherlands or in England. And so what you do is you see very rapid population shifts across state lines, driven in part by the tax and in part by the regulatory environment. And the decline in the population of Illinois is not driven by the income tax, which is actually relatively low. It is driven in part by the extremely high property tax and the very high workman's compensation figures, uh, which tend to take businesses to put them. Uh, So what you'd have to do is to say, well, workman's compensation is kind of like a tax. And if your rates are two to three times in Illinois, what they are in Iowa and Indiana or or Wisconsin, people are going to start to move. The Illinois Policy Institute publishes these numbers on a regular basis. And it's just absolutely clear uh, that the total tax and regulatory burden in Illinois is extremely high. So to answer your question in a slightly different fashion, um, yes, people respond to tax rates, but they respond to total regulatory and tax burdens more accurately than just a single tax, and they'll move across state lines very rapidly, and you see that in the United States. Look at a map and check the number of electoral votes of the various states in 1960 and see what they are today, and you can see the difference. New York is way down, Connecticut is in decline, Massachusetts is in decline, Illinois is in big decline. Uh, California had a long growth period, but will probably lose in the next election. Uh, Texas gained four electoral votes. Uh, It turns out Florida is now larger than New York, which is now the fourth largest state in the union. Pennsylvania is in decline. Yeah, this stuff really starts to matter. People respond to incentives at the margin, and the notion that you are really loyal to the state in the same way that you are to your nation may have been true in 1787, born a Virginian, die a Virginian, but it's certainly not going to be true today. I want to talk a little bit about the labor environment. You make a point in your Defining Ideas column that some readers may find a little counterintuitive, which is that right-to-work states, states that prohibit compulsory union membership, can actually in the long term create an environment in which unions have a better opportunity to thrive. Explain that. Well, it is not necessarily a universal truth, although it seems to be the case in Indiana. What happens is there are many dynamics. The first thing is you have to figure out what the size of the work base is. And if you're in a state like Illinois, that work base is relatively shrinking. And the new firms won't come into the state if they think they're going to be unionized. So what happens is as the base shrinks, as firms get a little bit more resistant to unions, uh, the total union membership starts to fall. You go into Indiana, the base has now gotten much larger. And since it's larger, if you have a smaller penetration, you may still increase your numbers. In addition, and this is a point that's been made by the Mackinac Institute and the Buckeye Institute, which I find absolutely fascinating and compelling, is now these unions have a competition because guys can exit. And if you have competition, you give people better terms. So what you discover is that union salaries in right-to-work states are lower than they are in non-right-to-work states. And it's also the case that the unions know that if they call a strike and they don't win it, it's going to be really disastrous. So what they tend to do is be more cooperative with management. Management looks at a union and it says, you know, if these guys are not going to pull out from me, there's certain advantages to having a union. That is, a union may help them organize the workforce, give them efficiency 
efficiency reforms of one kind or another. Many companies used to form company unions before they were outlawed by the National Labor Relations Act because they thought having unions with some voice in governance, if they could control who that union was, was pretty good. And so if you find out that the workers are now more willing to join and that the management teams are going to be uh, more willing to deal with unions, you can actually see the upturn. Uh, The key feature to understand is a union has both efficiency advantages in some cases and real restrictive practices on the other. If the union that forms only governs a particular plant, then they can't call industry-wide strikes and bring you down. And so the efficiency elements tend to be stronger because these union guys know from bitter experience that they go too hard on wage increases without offsetting improvements, that firm is going to be out of business and they'll lose their jobs. The reason this doesn't work in the public sector is if you screw up everything with respect to the teachers union in the city of Chicago, it's not as though another group of teachers can come in, form another school system, so they have a much stronger monopoly base and therefore can be much more powerful. So I think in effect that one never wants to take the position that we want to ban unions. What you want to do is to take the position that there are certain ways in which this thing can work which will make unions more cooperative with management and that the incentives start to matter. And if that's the case, and you have an employer that is quite happy to have a union and a worker that's quite happy to have a union and a union that seems to function well, and it's win-win-win all the way around, why am I as an academic supposed to say, I have this abstract fear and distaste of union, so it can't happen at all. And I do think that the change in environment really matters, and that's probably what explains the Indiana results. Speaking of the influence of public sector unions, we should talk for a moment about the public pension crisis that is bedeviling several of the states that we're talking about here. You have these situations in which states have amassed massive financial obligations to their public sector workers and have very little recourse in terms of how they mitigate the problem. So give us just a general sense, Richard, of how these kind of states, the Illinois of the world, got there and what they're up against in terms of thinking through reform. Well, part of it comes from the way in which your constitution is either written or interpreted. So in Illinois, what happens is the one set of contract rights that are absolutely sacred are union contracts. And the way in which this has been read is that the moment you get onto the job, they may be able to fire you, but they can't modify the pension terms so that it's fixed for the next 20 or 30 years of your employment. Then what the workers can do is often arrange so as to, for example, have the pension based upon the number of hours they work in the last two years of employment and put overtime into that base, and that could lead to a further spike of what's going on. And there's nothing that the government can do to stop all of this, particularly if it's Illinois, where the Democratic leadership and the unions are very much hand in glove. Uh, So what happens is these things start to build up on the one side. So we know that the liabilities get larger. Then you start looking at the asset side. Well, if you look at these formulas, the standard one tends to be, we're going to assume that this company is going to be able to earn, or the state on its invested assets, 7.5% or 8%, whereas for the last 15 years, that number has been more like 2 or 3 or 4%, depending upon the year and the place. That's a huge gap when it's compounded. 
more importantly, is that the moment a worker is no longer in the system but his pension rights are vested, you can no longer invest the money needed to fund that particular pension in equities. You have to put it in bonds. And that means you're getting these tremendously low rates of risk-free return that can't possibly support the obligation. So every time you move a retirement age earlier, you increase the way in which the benefit formula works, it puts more and more pressure on the system. Even when the Illinois legislature tried to make a reform which was half-hearted at best, it was struck down by the courts. And then to add insult to injury, the court said, we have to construe these pension obligations liberally, so we're not only going to cover pension, we're going to cover the health benefit stuff as well by the same absolute rule. And I regard that as one of the most ruinous decisions ever to be made. You've got to look at the basic financial situation. So this state is underwater, probably about 40%, I don't know the exact number, of its total pension burden is now going to be funded, which means that there's going to be a huge crash. And the longer you put it off, uh, what is going to happen is that the people who come into the system five years from now or 10 years from now may be wiped out, whereas the people who are currently in the system may get 90 or 100% of what their particular benefits are, which is going to create an intergenerational inequity, the likes of which you've never seen before. And it's because people simply don't understand that you need to have balanced budgets at the state level, given that you don't have the capacity to print new kinds of money. But everybody says we'll get the federal government to bail us out, and I don't believe that that will happen. Uh, So what's going to happen is Illinois is going to start to look like Puerto Rico, um, in which large portions of the population have left, and the overhanging indebtedness is so great that they can't possibly pay off even a fraction of the interest, let alone the principal, so they're in a battle royal in a bankruptcy court. I don't know if you could have bankruptcy in Illinois under current law. You cannot. Whether that will change, who knows? Uh, but there is going to have to be some kind of an arrangement because everybody but everybody, bondholders, pension holders, trade creditors, are going to have to take a haircut somewhere down the line. And that date is growing much closer than it's been. Right now, the state is very far behind in its obligations. And of course, if they increase the taxes, you know exactly what they're going to do. They'll create some new entitlement and they'll simply re, um, recreate the problem. That's what they did in 2010. Put a new tax in, put new expenditures in, and you're simply walking in place. You cannot reduce the deficit unless you fundamentally restructure the system. I could support tax increases if there were fundamental structural reforms in this particular state so as to get rid of the union structures, the tax structure, and so forth that's currently in place. Uh, but given what's happened on the Democratic side. In Illinois, it's not possible. I think you're seeing the same thing starting to happen in Connecticut. They come up with a harebrained scheme to tax the Yale endowment in order to balance their particular budget. It's not going to work. They're going to see all their billionaires walk out the door, and that's a huge portion of their revenue. So the wealthiest state, not in the Union, which is Connecticut, mainly because of its southwest portion, is going to find itself in desperate trouble. Uh, You cannot run a system in which you increase the amount of transfer payments through the state system at the same time what you do is you manage to throttle and to shackle all your productive facilities through zoning laws and through labor laws and through other kinds of taxation. Uh, That's what's happened. The business environment in these states is terrible. The elasticity for firms to move out is high. But more importantly, and we didn't mention it, but the number of people who are willing to enter Connecticut or to enter Illinois or 
enter California to subject themselves to that is zero. And so what you do is you're holding on to a smaller base, but you can't bring anybody in. And if you can't bring anybody in, eventually you're going to die. Uh, So I think, in effect, that this is a real downward spiral. I hate to sound this particularly pessimistic, but when you listen to the defenses that are made by the Democrats in these various states for their programs, it's quite clear that they do not understand that an anti-growth program in the end has to fail, no matter how clever your distributional preferences. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian at Defining Ideas, which is at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.